thank you for setting your podcast dial to 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson. The Electoral College has spoken. With those words in a floor speech this week, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell confirmed the results of the 2020 presidential election and recognized Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as the president and vice president-elect. Privately, the majority leader has urged Senate Republicans not to follow the example of Democratic Senator Barbara Boxer, who objected to congressional certification of the 2004 Electoral College results that elected President Bush to a second term. For his part, the president-elect has continued to roll out his cabinet nominees with a climate czar, transportation, and energy secretaries, the latest to be named. But how much of the pre-inauguration process might be completed on the Biden cabinet remains to be seen. And is the lame duck finally starting to quack? Appropriators have completed their work on fiscal year 2021 spending bills, but the continuing resolution keeping the government funded expires on Friday. President Trump has vowed to veto the annual defense authorization bill that sets Pentagon policy for the year, though the measure appears to have veto-proof congressional majorities. And do you hear what I hear? A star, a star dancing in the night? No, it's what looks like bipartisan compromise on a COVID support package, flickering but coming into focus. The very first Americans are getting vaccinated. Chief Wahoo is a goner. The Georgia runoffs for Senate control move into their end game. A presidential inauguration and Times Square ball drop in a pandemic. The revolution will be live streamed. Just about two weeks left in this hell of a year, but lots to get through before we close it out. That's why I'm so glad to be joined once again by my able colleagues here at the firm to help break it all down and cover all of 2020 in 20 minutes. Republican Bruce Melman and Democrat David Thomas. Bruce, DT, welcome to 14th and G. Thank you, Dean. Good to be here. As always, well-framed, Dean. (laughs) I do my best. Bruce, uh, the Electoral College did meet this week. They formally elected Biden and Harris uh, to the presidency and the vice presidency. McConnell validated the results in his floor speech. Uh, The elections are over. Republicans are unified again. All is well, right? Well, (laughs) there's over and there's over. Uh, Some of us have, have thought it's been over for a little longer than others, I suppose. But we now have affirmation. Uh, that there was not fraud and that Joe Biden won by more than 7 million million votes by the Trump Department of Justice, Trump Department of Homeland Security, Supreme Court, including all three Trump justices, more than 50 judges around the country, including many appointed by President Trump and other Republicans, Republican governors, as well as Democratic governors, including those who supported Donald Trump and Republican secretaries of state. You can now throw in the Electoral College, the majority of Republicans in the Senate, as best I can tell. While uh, this one's over, 2020, I suppose the uh, 2021 runoffs in Georgia suggest that it's not quite over. It's it's like uh, mostly dead. Yeah, Bruce, and, and what this means for Republicans going forward, I mean, the Georgia elections loom sort of over everything. I think it's part of the political calculation in, in how we've seen this lame duck sort of wrap up. But also, you know, it's pretty clear, I think, that uh, President Trump, perhaps his children and extended family members getting into politics, they're not going anywhere in 2021. It's going to be an active, I guess you would call it, wing of the party. They will be out of Washington, but not out of politics. 
with more than 74 million Americans having just voted for Donald Trump. And according to polls, a majority of Republicans uh, buying into his thesis that there was an extraordinary conspiracy of fraud, none of which left footprints, fingerprints or evidence. Um, that just suggests to me he's going to wield a lot more power in winter than uh, than most post presidencies. DT, the way all this wound up in you know just in terms of of, of contesting the results and and a hard contest of the election results, I'm curious what you, we would normally think Republicans and do think Republicans have the advantage in the two Georgia Senate runoffs that will determine final control of the Senate. What do you think all of this in process means for those two races? Uh, you know, I think it does, uh, Dean, under normal circumstances and, and history would tell us that Republicans and incumbents should hold on to these two seats in Georgia. But this is an unusual year. Uh, the election season will continue for that first weekend of January. Stacey Abrams, who really deserves more credit than almost anybody for, for turning Georgia around here, is back at it. The absentee uh, ballots have gone out and she is uh, working tirelessly to try to recreate the magic. The president-elect was down in Georgia yesterday uh, campaigning on the two uh, Democrats' behalf, uh, Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff. And, you know, the continued doubt that I think President Trump has put into the election systems really uh, may make that difference here. So while Republicans uh, should win this race, President Trump may do everything he can to uh, screw that up for the Republicans. It ain't over till it's over here. And we got a couple more weeks to go. Well, DT, we do have uh, we do have a few more weeks to go here before the elections. But the process of the transfer of power does roll on. Biden's continued to roll out his cabinet. Some cracks appearing in the Democrat firmament. Retired General Lloyd Austin needs a waiver to be secretary of defense. That's prompted concern from some senators who voted against a similar waiver for General Mattis to be uh, President Trump's Secretary of Defense, but Biden's nominees being rolled out on schedule. Uh, we've seen several new ones this week. Uh, where do things stand in your view? You know, we're close to winding down this process and having a full cabinet. And I expect that the Biden transition will have it done uh, in the next week before we really do shut down for uh, holidays. Yesterday, as, as you mentioned, uh, Governor Granholm uh, was announced uh, for the Department of Energy. Uh, Mayor Pete will be over at the Department of Transportation. And if the Senate approves him, I assume he'll become Secretary Pete. Uh, and then announcing Gina McCarthy to go into the White House as a, a climate czar working hand in hand with, with Secretary Kerry. Uh, you know, so those are, uh, you know, sort of the, the couple takeaways I take from the transition thus far, a few things here. Uh, number one is, for the most part, you see people who've announced who have very deep experience in, in government here. But look no further than the Department of Agriculture, where has there ever been anybody more experienced than Tom Vilsack, who already has had the job for eight years and now will go back. Uh, but that's emblematic of, I think, many of the people that he's chosen, people who can jump right in. We've got a lot of things to deal with in the government between COVID and getting the economy back on track. He wants a team that's ready to go. Number one. Number two, diversity. He said he wanted to have the most diverse cabinet ever. He is well on the way to uh, uh, to achieving that goal. And the third is, uh, yeah, have there been some uh, drama around some of the picks? Yes, but I would actually argue there's been 
uh, surprisingly little drama in the way the transition has gone so far, particularly in light of the sort of uh, way that, that President Trump has, has responded post-election here. You know, I, I think uh, boring is good. I think the country's ready for a little boring going into 2021. This is uh, looking to be a capable, experienced team that's, that'll be ready to go on the 20th. Yeah, I agree with you, DT. Uh, a lot of these folks bring a lot of experience, obviously very good working relationships with the president-elect. Interestingly, some folks seem to be people I assume he'd pick, but not in the lanes I would have expected. So Javier Becerra would have been a natural attorney general, but he was picked for HHS, where he may not have as much of a health background. Pete Buttigieg, who I would have thought was a natural for the Veterans Affairs Administration, being a veteran, but was picked for the Department of Transportation. Susan Rice, who I think should have been on a short list for Sec State, is the Domestic Policy Council. Any thoughts on uh, on the kind of great athletes, even if they're not in the positions you assume they'd be in? Well, I guess uh, as you point those out, Bruce, I'm, I'm, I reflect back to four years ago when Dr. Ben Carson was appointed to HUD, and that made perfect sense. Uh, no, I think, <laughs> you know, it, honestly, Bruce, I think he's trying to build a team of experienced people here. And I think don't sell a lot of these folks short here. You, you know, a lot of people have pointed out that, that Attorney General Becerra uh, doesn't have healthcare experience, and that's just not true. There's nobody who's sort of fought harder for the ACA in his current job than, than uh, the Attorney General of California. And add on top of that, he was in Congress for 25 years and was central in the drafting of the ACA and was on Ways and Means Committee, which has a huge uh, jurisdiction over health care. He knows health care. And so I think that's a little bit of an unfair uh, criticism. I think what he is trying to do is, is sort of build this team around him where experience counts for more than anything else. And what does Joe Biden have more than anybody else's experience? So I think he's trying to build sort of a like-minded team around him of people who can can really hit the ground running. But DT, you know, we typically get some of the Senate confirmation process done between administrations, courtesy calls with senators, even some confirmation hearings. So you can tee up those nominees for floor consideration right after inauguration. I have not seen a lot of that happening. Uh, at this point in the process, have you? Uh, no, I think between the delay in the start of the transition combined with the uh, Georgia runoff elections, it has been a, a slow process for starting the confirmation process up on the Hill. And so, uh, you know, what I think that the, the uh, Biden transition is looking at doing here is knowing that it's going to take a little longer is to get the, those um, 1,200 confirmed, Senate confirmed appointees done. They're looking at getting the political appointees who aren't, don't require Senate confirmation in and in place as soon as they can following January 20th here. That's something that the landing teams are working on right now. Uh, it's a little bit different maybe from past transitions here where you would see the, the, you know, the senior cabinet officials sort of going in first, getting confirmed on January 20th, heading down to their offices, and then starting that more formal hiring process underneath them. I think it's going to be upended a little bit this year. So there are. let's move into the meat of what's going on right now. Three moving parts to this lame duck session and closing out the 116th Congress. You've got government funding, for fiscal year 2021, which is running on a continuing resolution through Friday, the National Defense Authorization Act that sets Pentagon policy for the year and has been passed every year, I think for about the last 50 years, and another COVID support package. Each one has their own set of politics, but curious how you guys see where we stand as, as Congress tries to close out for the holidays. 
I'll, I'll kick things off here. I think we're I think we're very close uh, to to winding down the year here. Um, there have been some great developments overnight. The big four congressional leaders, Pelosi, McCarthy, McConnell, and Schumer, uh, met several times uh, late into the night to to bang out that big deal, uh, which which would include appropriations, COVID, and some other. Um, uh, dogs and cats uh, attached to the final bill here. I think we're going to have an announcement uh, soon, uh, which would allow Congress to finish up his business and get everybody home for the holidays. Yeah, it's uh, it makes me feel like the old Winston Churchill line. Uh, Americans always do the right thing after exhausting all possibilities. Congress tends to get the work that must be done done. But uh, but why rush it? It's only December 16th. We have plenty of time. You know, an interesting data point here. It's a little bit of an unfair shot as a result of we all being locked down. But at the same time, uh, a group called Quorum took a look at the contrast between congressional tweeting and congressional legislation. In 2019, Congress tweeted 50 times for every one bill that was introduced. And Congress tweeted 2,489 times for every bill that got enacted. In 2020, Congress tweeted 98 times per bill introduced versus 50 last year and 17,912 times for every bill enacted versus that 2,500 last year. There's a lot on social media going on, uh, but they're still grinding through the things that we need them to do in the basic responsibility of their job. Melman, you're always good for the metrics we never knew we needed. That's a great one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, DT, break that down just a little bit more because I think I think I think government funding and COVID support are going to be tied together. That's on one track. We expect uh, the, the the appropriations bills are written. The compromise for COVID support is coming together. But then on NDAA, you have uh, you still have a presidential veto threat of the defense bill over. Confederate base names over Section 230 for internet platform liability. If the president vetoes that at some point in the next week, the Congress would have to come back to override that uh, at some point before the new Congress is sworn in on January 3rd. Yeah, that may uh, really throw a wrench into the holiday season for for members of Congress, uh, Dean. And my understanding is that arrangements are being made if the president does decide to go ahead with his veto threat and veto the NDAA that would bring uh, both houses of Congress back to town between Christmas and New Year's. So that is a possibility that they are looking into. Um, I think everyone is hoping uh, that the NDAA can be signed and we can move on from this. Both bills were passed with veto-proof majorities, although it is unclear whether some uh, Republican members may support the president and not vote for a veto override. So uh, that's, that, that is looking to be the last big question of uh, 2020. Well, guys, this is probably our last 2020 in 20 minutes before we start covering 2021 in 21 minutes. Uh, we're all so we're going to get an extra minute next year. We're going to I'm going to give you guys an extra 60 seconds next That's year. That's huge. <laughs> Man, we're I'll all... tell you, when we get to uh, the year 2100, we're going to be going forever. <laughs> <laughs> this thing will never end, which is how it feels right now. Uh, we're all hopeful of returning to some semblance of normal life in the coming months, you know, but lockdown, limited uh, human interaction. I'm wondering, what are your lessons and takeaways from this strangest of years? Uh, Dean, I, I've got uh, sort of three lessons uh, learned here, and I'll try to be as quick as I can here. But uh, 
number one lesson for 2020 is the power of sticking with it. Bruce and I, we have daughters who go to a school and, and their motto is sort of informal is find a way or make one. And I think that's been a, sort of a goal for everybody in uh 2020. Look no further than Joe Biden. The guy ran for president in 88, 2008, and 2020. He finally pulled it off. If there's ever an example of sticking with it, it's him. Uh, look to the congressional leaders who met late into the night. Um, Pelosi passed uh, the HEROES Act back on May 15th. It's been seven months and one day, and they are sticking with it. I think they're going to get it done. And, and maybe even more importantly here, I look to the local example of sticking with it. You know, I look to local restaurants uh, who have found a way to get through this crisis by thinking creatively, uh, outside dining, delivery, pickup, alcoholic drinks to go, which I'm really hoping sticks around in 2021. That's <laughs> a real way, you know, the, the power of sticking with it is important. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two, the power of the individual. As I look to, you know, the, this past year and, and the social justice movement that came out of the death of George Floyd here, individuals can make a difference here. To that, you look, no one of us knew who Dr. Fauci was a year ago, and now he, nobody has guided us through this crisis better than him. And finally, I look to the, uh, the Democratic Convention. The two speakers who stood out most to me were uh, Jacqueline Brittany, who is the elevator operator from the New York Times, who spoke so eloquently about meeting Joe Biden, and the 13-year-old New Hampshire boy who shares a stutter with Joe Biden, Braden Harrington. These are individuals, and they made a real difference this year. Uh, my third thing I learned uh, is the power of dogs. Shelters are at an all-time uh, low. Demand for breeders is at an all-time high. But most importantly, my, my uh, group that I look to most is the holiday cards I've received. And almost every card I have, everybody I know has a new dog. If you're going to get through a pandemic, you need a dog. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll try to follow my three lessons from 2020. Number one, I think uh, it's going to prove to be a very accelerative year. And to try to figure out where things are going, you need to understand where we've been, particularly in three lanes, technology, uh, where the pace of digitization has really accelerated, but so has the tech lash. In geopolitics, where we are re-architecting the world, and it's about time a post-Cold War with U.S. Soviets, a new entering a new Cold War with U.S. and China. And then culturally, we're seeing uh, the ongoing rise of activism, which is which is great for purposes, for example, of having more Americans eager to vote than ever before. Um, we're also seeing what appears to be the beginning of a political realignment with civil wars in both parties trying to decide who they want to be for the next decade or two. Uh, learn Observation number two, trust is the most important attribute of the 2020s. It's going to be true for leaders. It's going to be true for brands. Uh, increasingly, you're in, in a country and in a world with, uh, with fraying social trust. If you can have that trusted brand, uh, that's everything. Third, I, I, I love DTs about dogs. Mine was a little bit uh, less fun about dogs, but it was more about the greatness of Americans. You know, if you watch cable news or Twitter, it really sucks out there. But if you look at who's volunteering in your communities, if you look at just the average individual stocking the shelves in the grocery store, but keeping a good attitude, or the nurses and doctors and hospitals, uh, ours is a great country filled with really great people. You've got great neighbors. Um, if we can figure out a way to make the political system some, not so much less than the individual parts, I'm really optimistic about the future. Well, my lesson is pretty simple. Uh, no man is an island entire of itself. I've learned just how much I depend on interaction with other people and, and not just time with family and friends and coworkers that we all 
took and take for granted, but the simple everyday interactions with strangers, sharing an elevator, small pleasantries and courtesies like holding a door or making a quick joke, smiling at people. It's uh, one of the things I really miss and look forward to getting back to. Also, a winter beard and a mask make a terribly poor combination. It is the worst kind of itch. I, I'm going to shave. I'm going to get rid of the mask. I think it may be the, the second worst kind of itch. <laughs> Maybe it's the second worst. I'll take, I'll take your point. I'm going to shave. I'm going to get rid of this mask in 2021. Bruce Melman, David Thomas, thanks for joining me on 14th and G. Thank you, Dean. Thanks, Dean.